The next hour will inform you on how cybersecurity is one of the most significant threats to our national security, as well as the battle that cybersecurity experts are undergoing every day on your behalf to protect you, your families, and your data. Welcome to Task Force 7 Radio with your host, the president and CEO of Task Force 7 Radio and Task Force 7 Technologies, George Reedus. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number 128 of Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm your host, George Reedus. I want to emphasize that all the opinions expressed on the show are my own and not that my present or past employers. I would never disclose any sensitive intelligence that I've been privileged to as a result of my current employment, and I would never knowingly disclose any classified information related to any security clearances I presently hold or have held in the past with the United States government, and nothing I say during this show should be construed as legal or financial advice. Before I get started, I remind our audience you can go to online at the Cybersecurity Hub and read a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at their very cool website, www.cshub.com. The Cybersecurity Hub is an online news source for global cybersecurity professionals and business leaders who leverage technology and services to secure their networks. The media professionals at the Cybersecurity Hub are dedicated to providing the latest interesting news, thought leadership, and analysis in the cybersecurity space. So again, to check out our recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news, go to the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. So just as a reminder, folks, we're on at least a dozen different playback mediums now. You can find us everywhere. And you can listen to us and listen to any episode you like right here on our very own website at www.tf7radio.com. You can listen to TF7radio.com at your convenience, 24-7, 365, anytime, anywhere around the world. And as always, whatever you do, don't forget to subscribe. We love it when you subscribe. You can subscribe to TF7 Radio right from our very own website. I think that's the best way to do it. So we have one of the most interesting people in the cybersecurity industry that's going to be with us this evening. And I just think it's fantastic. I can't wait to get going. Mr. Paul Dwyer is going to be joining us this evening straight from Dublin, Ireland. So, Paul is recognized as one of the world's foremost experts on cybersecurity, risk, and privacy. He's all over the place. He's all over social media. He gets around a lot. He's very popular. I'm sure a lot of you listening to the show know who he is and have heard of him. And as the CEO of Cyber Risk International, he specializes in corporate and enterprise security. He specializes also in the development of cyber defense programs, and also business operations protections for CRI clients. He's worked extensively around the world. He's got a very diverse career. He spans more than 25 years working with the military, law enforcement, and the commercial sector. And he's had a variety of really impressive roles. I'll give you some of the roles he's had. He's been the president of the International Cyber Threat Task Force, the co-chairman of the NCA, National Crime Agency Industry Group. That's the UK NCA. He's been an advisor to the National Counterterrorism Security Office. He's been an advisor to NATO on countering hybrid cyber threats. He's also uh, been an advisor to the UK Defense Committee, DEFCOM, and in Parliament. He's been the deputy chair of the Organized Crime Task Force Industry Group. He's the interim global CISO for numerous multinational organizations. And he's also been an advisor to numerous government and, and, and intelligence agencies. And what a crazy resume. I mean, very, very, very impressive gentleman, very smart. He's a member of a number of different industry groups, including the Institute of Directors, the Institute of International and European Affairs, and also the Institute of Risk Management. So as a very accomplished serial entrepreneur, 
he's successfully built a number of security practices in the UK and in Ireland, and in 2016 was identified by Business and Finance as one of Ireland's top 100 CEOs. His career started as a technical networking specialist, as a lot of careers do start in, in cybersecurity. Then he specialized, trained, and qualified in a number of disciplines, including but not limited to ethical hacking, forensics, international management systems, risk management, business continuity, international governance frameworks, cyber laws, and project management. So I guarantee this is going to be one of the most fascinating cybersecurity interviews you're ever going to hear. I'm super stoked about having Paul on the show. So let's get right to it, folks. So it's my pleasure to welcome to the show CEO of Cyber Risk International and the president of the International Cyber Threat Task Force, Mr. Paul Dwyer. Paul, welcome to Task Force 7 Radio. Thank you, George. It's a pleasure to be here. Hey, it's great to have you on. I'm really excited about this interview. And I know we were talking, uh, you know, before the show about, uh, about all the topics that we're going to talk about tonight. Some of the most interesting stuff I think we've had here on TF7 Radio. But right now, we're undergoing one of the biggest challenges in our country's history in this war against COVID-19. And you and I were just you know, talking about it a little bit before the show and some of the realities of, of what's going on. I really believe that Mark Cuban has it right when he says that this is a time for us to see the best of capitalism and the ingenuity of the American people, uh, of the people in the EU, and then it will be on display here. It's going to be displayed. We're going to see some of the best and worst of humanity in this crisis, but hopefully a lot more of the best. What role does cybersecurity play in finding the key to victory over this horrible virus? Um, great question. Cheers, George. I mean, I think, that, you know, essentially, as I've talked to about this before with people, I've said, at the end of the day, the solution is going to come from a line of code or some sort of system that is being supported from an IT perspective. And that means that it has to be secure. Um, we're, we're seeing here uh, basically a realization that uh, national borders don't matter anymore. And we, we, those parallels can easily be drawn into to cyber threats so easily. Um, so this isn't about America. This isn't about Europe. It's not about Ireland. It's about humanity being connected and trying to deal with this threat. And the solution will lie in the ability to be able to communicate effectively, to be able to analyze data, uh, to be able to, to distinguish between fake and real, uh, and, and be able to get to the, to the end of this. Um, I do believe it's bringing out the best and the worst in people. Um, we can see that from the cyber threat actors who are even uh, attacking the World Health Organization as we speak, um, or the, the scam artists, the, the fake cures, all of those kind of things out there. But we're also seeing the ingenuity, um, the, the collaboration, um, the, 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 the people putting egos to one side and just trying to work together to come up with solutions. And I think that that's fantastic uh, on many levels. I mean, just to keep businesses going. I mean, locally here in Ireland, even we're just seeing that businesses are actually paying people uh, ahead of time just to make sure that, that, that money itself is flowing through the economy and that businesses won't disappear out of this. So I, I think cybersecurity has an amazing and a huge part to play in this because if we let the bad guys, the evil, um, uh, affect the progress that needs to be made in this, um, then we'll have failed. So uh, it's incumbent upon every cybersecurity warrior, so to speak, out there to do their jobs um, and, and to keep the systems running, to keep them protected, um, and not let opportunists take advantage of this situation. Yeah, no doubt. You know, I saw something on TV on the news, <clears throat> excuse me, um, that was talking about, you know, countries using supercomputers to come up with a, a, a vaccine. Uh, for the virus, and they were saying that this isn't a competition, right, between these countries. These countries, no one can do it alone. Everyone has to work together, and it was sort of so refreshing to see 
everyone pulling together to come up with this solution. And you're right. I mean, it is going to come uh, from code, and uh, and that's how we're, well that's how we're moving so quickly right now. I think we're, you know setting records right across the world in terms of the speed in which the solution is being implemented, different different phases of the solution. But also, there's some interesting things that we can take away from this and sort of relate to it in, in the cybersecurity world. I see that COVID-19 has obviously reminded us about some of the basic hygiene practices that we should all be following up on to help stop the spread of the disease. People, you know, coughing into their sleeves and, and not going out when they're sick and, and washing their hands. I, I never washed my hands so much in my life. I was a big hand washer to begin with, so now it's really excessive. But um, what kind of parallels can we draw from, from this in the cybersecurity world in terms of the, you know, the hygiene that's going on right now and the cyber hygiene that should be taking place in, in cybersecurity? Well, I, I think there's lots of them. I mean, if you think of the message that, that has been echoing for, for so long about cyber hygiene, about the fact that, you know, contagion uh, fa- factors that, that can cause on from somebody being infected from whether it's ransomware or whether it's a particular piece of malware or whatever, the fact that the basic controls such as patching, you know, such as updates and so on, that prevent a lot of this. I mean, that that's akin to washing your hands. That's a, akin to, you know, sneezing into your elbow as opposed to all over a room and and that kind of story. I mean, I, I, I remember, uh, and I'm reminded when we looked at the G7 fundamentals when they came out and the, and the group of seven countries being so worried that the, the whole economy could be affected by a cyber attack. And it was really down to this, this um, uh, part of being interconnected and interdependent and the fact that one small player, we saw that with the, the SWIFT attacks and so on like that, that weren't necessarily you know SWIFT itself being attacked, but the fact of this knock-on effect that if different parts of the system, um, if different parts of the economy, different parts of what makes up uh, the world's global economy, the financial service sector itself, be, become infected or become damaged. Um, uh, you know, uh, it's all to play for because it, it can be the end, if, if, especially if people not just lose the, the availability and access to data, but to be able to trust the integrity of the data that they're getting. And it was only a few weeks ago um, that we had the president of the European Central Bank coming out and saying that they felt that there could be a liquidity crisis based on a cyber attack. And, and, and she had estimated that maybe it would cost 500 billion. This is all just pre-COVID. Um, so I, I'm un- unfortunately being... Uh, uh, putting out a bit of a negative message there, a warning to people saying, um, all these bad guys that have, been, that have been holding off and maybe we've been able to defend against them and affecting the global economy in, in such a way, um, the big one is, 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 is going to happen in relation to the financial sector in particular because they're highly organized. This is how they make their living. Um, the, the general defenses of cyber hygiene stops most attacks, as we all know. Um, but the big organized guys, we can see that they're, they're, they're rubbing their hands and they're, and they're getting ready to, to make moves, uh, more sophisticated moves on, on uh, larger, um, larger targets. So you think they're going to take advantage of the situation completely and you know, pray on the yeah, hundred percent. I mean, it can cost people uh, lives here. I mean, this is uh, not absolutely, absolutely. Look, I mean, back in uh, the, the the last physical event, I think we did was back on on March ten, and um, we talked then and we said to people, look, you know, there's going to be lots of different scams out there. People will be selling fake masks, fake cures. Um, there's going to be invoice fraud. There's going to be all this kind of stuff. You know, the phishing emails. And people even then were were, were looking at us and going, really, I don't think that would happen, would it? And here we are, a couple of weeks later, three weeks later, maybe, and. The, the internet is just full of these scams now at the moment. You've got Europol, Interpol, uh, putting out warnings, the FBI, everybody, about these lo- local law enforcement all over the world um, because you can't believe that these guys are actually doing this. They're even attacking hospitals. Was a, yeah, this is what I was just going to ask you. This is yeah. dis- that is disgusting. Disgusting. 
Yeah. I mean, what kind of person does that? I mean, people's lives are in danger. People need help. They're sick. There's got workers there 24 hours a day risking their life to help other people. And they're over there attacking the hospitals. Yeah. And then they have the audacity to call an amnesty and a truce and saying, hey, you know, we're going to be good criminals. Uh, we're, we're not going to attack healthcare anymore. But guess what? Everybody else is a prime target. And in fact, maybe even higher on the list. Um, and of course, we're talking about different threat actors here. We're talking about nation states, stake and done. We're talking with script kiddies. We're talking about all different kinds. So they're all different kind of motivations. I mean, let me draw your attention to, to one crazy, crazy thing that's going on in Ireland and the UK and Europe at the moment. And it's called the Corona Challenge. And it involves young people going around coughing into other people's faces. Ugh. And that, that has been instigated, propagated on the internet. People are being arrested here for it. Um, so there's COVID-positive teens coughing into old people's faces. I mean, wow. it, 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 it defies belief of, of the inhumanity or the stupidity uh, of people that are doing this kind of thing. Um, but like we were saying earlier before the call, I mean, I think this is bringing out the best and the worst in people. Um, I think it's a chance for people um, that, that maybe are, are in the background but become heroes in situations like because they're the, they're the, the frontline workers um, that, that, that are on the cutting edge of this. But then there's the other people that are going to be pushing the technology, the IT, all of those side of things that, that can really step up to the plate here and, and, and really be part of the solution. So I think information about what's going on in the world in terms of the COVID-19 virus is really essential about how, what people think, their perceptions, what's real, what's not. And interestingly enough, the, the ratings over here on the media are at an all-time low, I think it would appear. I think it was like 20 or 30% approval or something like that. Yeah. Um, very, very low. Very low was the approval of the American public of how the media is handling the COVID-19 crisis. So they're, they're, they're getting these super low marks from the American public. Uh, on their handling of the pandemic, and it, it, but they continuously, relentlessly attack anyone in this administration, anyone, anyone has anything to do with the administration. But while the president's numbers for handling the pandemic, I think, are at 60%, and Governor Cuomo's numbers are really up there too, maybe even more, I think. They're very high. And so you have a, a, a Republican uh, president and a Democratic mayor, two leaders, two different parties coming together for Americans, they're, they're, they're constantly talking. I think they talk a few times a day, they've said. Um, and it seems like they're really working together, giving people the best information and trying to do what they can to protect the American people. But we're reminded that the press, you wouldn't know this in the press. I mean, it would seem like, you know, if you listen to both leaders talk, it seems like they're, you know, saying the same thing. And, it, and they're working, both working together to uh, try to do what's best for Americans. Now, the press is under this, you know, they're just a constant reminder that information is power, right? Absolutely. And you control the information, you control the narrative, and if you control the narrative, you control the democracy, right? What, what are your mm -hmm. thoughts? Well, well, that's exactly it. You, you know, George, I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a huge fan of, of America and, and I love the country and, and everything that, that it stands for and represents. Um, I, I can see the pain that American people are going through with this partisan um, divide that, that, that unfortunately America and other countries um, really have a challenge with. Um, it's come to the, 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 the sad fact that you know, I, I think a lot of Americans, a lot of the world gets their news about America from comedians now. Um, and it's so hard mm -hmm. to trust any 
factual source of what's coming through. Um, and, and we saw this, look, with Cambridge Analytica, and we saw all this around the, the elections and everything else like that, that, that controlling the information, the psychology of that, playing into this bipartisanship uh, part and, and dividing people as well up means that you can control the messaging. And I think it was Mark Zuckerberg himself said that, you know, the day will come when you care more about the dead squirrel in your back garden than you do about the starving children in Africa. And what he was pointing there was actually how easy it is just to feed in the, the, the Republican message, the Democrat message over in the United States, and that people will only hear the message that from their own kinds of people, their own narrative, and so on. And it's so easy then to convince people of anything. Absolutely anything. Uh, and, and look, this is psyops that's going on with COVID as well to a certain extent. This is FUD. This is fear, uncertainty, and doubt. This is scary stuff that, that would unhinge anybody and, and, and get them to believe in their own core group. So I think we're in a very dangerous place around the news, not just in America, but, but all over the world. Um, the fact of social media, everybody's coming up with a new conspiracy theory. Uh, one minute, the Chinese are the bogeyman. Next minute, it's the United States. I mean, um, you know, I, I think we're all under one flag now, which is humanity. And, and we need to park politics. We need to park even nationalism and, and, and work together as humans to, to deal with this and maybe learn from it. Um, the, the virus doesn't care about creed, color, nationality. No. It's going after all of us. Yeah, that's right. You know, so, I mean, <laughs> I, I, I think, you know, we, we really need to just bond as humans on this. And maybe that's one of the positives that will come out of it. And, and I think, you know, the strong leaders... Um, uh, the people that I would respect are the ones that I see parking politics for the moment and dealing and putting humans first and saying, look, let's just deal with this. Let's get it sorted. We'll worry about numbers afterwards and we'll worry about everything else afterwards. Um, but once they get trapped in their own personal agendas, their own egos, everything else, uh, I think then humanity is going to pay a price for that. So knowing that if you have the information, you control the narrative. And if you control the narrative, you control democracy. Security plays a huge role here. Right, because the security around all this information actually leads to control of people's minds in some degree. Absolutely. So having said all this, and, and does the dominance of companies like Facebook, I mean, you, you mentioned Cambridge Analytica, mean that democracies for sale, even in the hands of cyber threat actors, I mean, they can actually, it, not even for sale, but they could steal it. In some sense, right? Absolutely. I mean, if you can control that messaging, and this is something I even talked to Edward Snowden about on a live interview chat that we did last year, and really we're pushing that whole thing is if everybody believes a certain color looks a certain way because they keep hearing that message over and over again, if I propagate a message out saying that the United States government are coming for your guns, you're going to start believing it eventually. You know, and, and you're going to think about your Second Amendment and everything else. That You're going to get your back up and say, really, they're going to come for us? Um, people will, will believe it's a marketing ploy, mm. it's, it's psyops, it's, 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 psych, it's psychological warfare. Uh, when somebody has, can, can has that power to reach into you when you're susceptible, to reach into your mind when you're relaxed, when you're sitting at home in the safety of your own home and you've got a device in your hand and you're trusting the message that's coming in from this. And you're trusting that that message has been endorsed by your own core group, by your own tribe, by your own clan, that those guys are actually agreeing with this and commenting on it. And you go, well, this must be true because my friend Rick said this and my friend Bob said this. Um, and, and, and people are just b b trying to become very tribal online. And, and, and we've seen, you know, uh, lots of stuff uh, around that, the evidence and proof that that does work. And I think that, that makes this situation with COVID even more dangerous because of th there was stories going around saying drink bleach, it will cure it. Yeah. 
Nah. You know, I mean, seriously. Come I mean, on. I mean, I mean you, you look at those things and you say, well, that's why there's a website called Darwin Awards, you know? I mean, like, <laughs> it, maybe, maybe that's part of the culling, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and, and, and that's part of that. But, but on a serious point, I mean, the, the problem is, is that you're, if, if you're only getting informed by this source, you're looking at that, and I've talked about this before, about cultural hegemony and the fear that someone like Facebook can control the politics of a country. We've seen governments that, that pay for the services to control a message in, in, in East Africa and West Africa and so on and how that's been done um, and, and where a lot of this gets back even on a deeper level George is that when you think of the bias uh, that's been built into a lot of the code and a lot of the AI and the machine learning and so on a lot of those things have been developed um, and we've seen that the, the absolute point blank cases of this for example where there was um, facial rec recognition software that would only recognize really white people um, and, and that was because we put together basically by a group of white people and, and the sample group and everything <laughs> else like that. You know, and, and the thing is, if the bias is coming in from, from 20 year old California white kids into right. how it behaves, you're looking at a whole, different, a whole different world because that's how things are going to behave. I, I don't mean to laugh, but it just seems so commonsensical, right? When someone yeah. should have thought about, hey, we need a little bit of diversity of thought here when we're putting this code together. Um, you know, yeah, I, absolutely. I, 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 think, <laughs> I think from from that point of view, where, where I see the big difference is, for example, is even around privacy. Okay, so in Europe, we have a human right to privacy under the Human Rights Act, and and we saw this with, with the, there's always been a big divide there up until you, you know GDPR came in in Europe, and we had the whole safe harbor thing going on with the United States about, about transfers. The United States of America was on a blacklist of countries that you had to put a special controls in place before you could transfer data to them, unless they had safe harbor in place. Okay, now Bolivia was not on that list. Now you think of, of trading partners and who we deal with even on a cultural point of view and everything. It's like, oh, well, we can trust America. They're great. We get all our technology for them. But from a privacy perspective, the culture and view of the privacy was completely different in the United States as opposed to how it is seen across Europe. And even within Europe, George, it's different. It, it, and, and we see this in, in how we even handle cyber incidents. Uh, and it's a lot to do with history. It, it, for example, if I, um, if I look at the polar ends of privacy across Europe, they'd have a completely uh, uh, different view of privacy in Germany uh, than they would, and that's because of their history with the Stasi. Uh, they, they'd have a different view in Poland than they would have in the UK. Um, and a lot of this is because it, it is a checkered um, different levels and, and, and different approach to privacy controls based on the history and culture of those individual countries as opposed to a one approach across in, in America. I'm not saying which is right or which is wrong. I'm just saying that they're different. And as a consequence, the world uses American software and, and American solutions. And therefore, you can often come across this uh, friction between what, what applications do, uh, what systems do, uh, what they shouldn't do uh, mm. from a morality and ethics point of view. So I can't squander the opportunity. You said you spoke to Snowden and you interviewed him. I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts about what you think about him and about what he did. Um, yeah, I mean, look, uh, I, I've got myself into a lot of trouble for that, 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 that kind of stuff uh, <laughs> uh, with friends that don't talk to me anymore and all that good stuff. But look, my, my view on it, is, um, it boils down to the one line, right? I think he did the world a favor. Um, and um, I've interviewed him twice. I, I, a, a supremely uh, nice and intelligent guy. Um, I believed in his motivations and, and his passion. Um, I understand, and in, in a short window of opportunity that we're talking like this, George, I know it's very hard to cover such a deep subject like that and the nuances of it, of what he did sure. and what he shouldn't have done and everything else like that. But what I will say is that he brought the world's attention um, to the fact that things were going on that shouldn't be going on. And if I boil it down even to one simple point, um, you know, 
I, I brought this back when we were talking to him about, about the uh, uh, back to the, the the experiments with that were done during the Nazi period of time, where they got guys in and they they sat them on on uh, uh, anonymously behind a screen and they were able to electrocute people on the other side, um, and they would tell them the guy in the white coat would come up and tell them uh, up the voltage, do it again, and they followed the orders because the guy was wearing a white coat. The Milgram experiments, right? And yeah. these things were done over and over again, right? Uh, and and the people followed the orders, and the, and this is a fascinating psychological experiment because people said, well, the guy in authority told me to do it, and and I thought that this was a really interesting thing around the fact that um, he was being told to do this, but something in him wouldn't wouldn't let him do it. Now that's where people start getting into the debate: was he trying to create a persona for himself and a profile, or was he just morally and ethically, which I tend to believe that that he followed his his moral compass and said, you know what, um, part of the the the, uh, the 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 vows, if you like, he took when he when he signed on, he knew what his job was, but his job was never ever to surveil Americans. And when he found himself that he was doing this and to the level and extent that it was being done, I felt that that might have been the tipping point. And then a chain reaction happened and all the different things, as, as we know, happened. Um, I do feel that he's in a very precarious condition at the moment because of the fact that um, the elections are coming up in the U.S. and, and, and his own um, uh, asylum is up for question at that time because of what's happened uh, around Julian Assange as well. Um, but overall, I think it boils down to that line. I think at the end of the day, he, he's done the world a favor and and he's given us a chance to to uh, to, to reflect upon privacy. Um, I'm an advocate for privacy, but obviously I work in the world of security. I know how important it is. But when you see extremes of this, um, where you know uh, the press has become the enemy of the people, or what happened to Khashoggi and uh, things like this, I, I, I mean, you know, um, the, the, there's a lot to be debated. There's a lot of conversations that need to be had. What do you think is going to happen, Edward Snowden? One theory is is that he would be gift wrapped and handed over to uh, Mr. Trump um, around election time because that's pretty much when his asylum uh, is up. So if favors were being done, um, that's probably would be the time to do it and uh, see what would happen. Um, I mean, uh, you know, I, I, I've seen quotes from senior politicians over there uh, saying that I think the right thing to do is for him to come back, stand trial, and be executed. You know, how, how does that how does that fare out? You know, um, and I think. Uh, I think Edward Snowden is willing to come back based on what he says. He's willing to come back as long as there's a guarantee that he won't be tortured. Um, and I think he, he's willing to come back and face the music. Um, and I, I think there's a great debate there. I think that, the, look, depending on who gets in in the next election, 2020, in the United States, um, you could see him, him getting pardoned. Who knows? Um, I, I think at this stage... Those are two um, very big, big extremes. Absolutely. But, but let, let's think about it. I mean, if, it, if it's someone like Bernie Sanders gets in, um, you know, you could be looking potentially at being pardoned. If, if it's uh, Mr. Trump again, um, you could be looking at the fact that if he did come back, um, that, uh, um, you know, just like Chelsea Manning, uh, he, he'll have some hard times ahead. So, you know, well, geopolitics plays a big role in all this, and it's also played a big role in every country's response to the COVID-19 virus. I think we talked about countries coming together. We did talk about the best of humanity. We talked about everybody coming together for, to, to try to get a vaccine. But nonetheless, if you've seen in the news, you know, a lot of uh, geopolitical complexities in the relationships between China and the United States, you mentioned it before, and in really how it's determined some of the decision-making in actions and, and war plans against the virus. 
uh, really, it can't be understated, especially when it comes to medical supplies and who has them and who doesn't and how can, you, how can I use this as a bargaining chip and things like that. Is it important for a CISO to understand geopolitics? 100%. I mean, it's, it's one of the things that um, when I meet a, 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 a CISO for the first time, um, it's one of the first questions I ask them. Or if, if they're interviewing for a, for a CISO role, um, I ask them about politics. Because as I say to, to in, in my own talks, is that I, I remember I used to go to bed reading technical manuals and books, uh, being a nerd <laughs> and all that good stuff. But these days I, I, I read about politics. I, I, I read about what's happening with the Islamic State. I read about what's happening in America to keep up with, with, with the, the uh, the, the uh, myriad of uh, and the landscape of all of that, and because it is so directly, what happens in the real physical world has an instant response on the cyber world. So if we see posturing going on down in the Ukraine, um, you'll see an instant response where J.P. Morgan will, will will start getting attacked or something in the United States. And this is this is cyber bullets over the bow. Uh, this is shows of strength um, to say, listen, don't mess with us because th- things could, could get a lot worse. Um, and I think there's all. Of, I, I don't think any CISO can do their, their their job properly and protect the businesses that that they that they should protect if they don't understand the political landscape. Because depending on what countries you're operating in, depending on where your suppliers are from, all of these things are going to get impacted by geopolitics, and you have to understand that. Um, it's no longer just about you know CVE vulnerability indexes and, and application level uh, vulnerabilities and all those kind of things. This is about where what what's the source of your threat actors, where they're going to come from, um, and I'm. Always reminded a story I use an example is I remember um, we, we took on a large client which was an insurance company we started dealing with them and I got a call off the CEO uh, a few weeks later and he said listen I really need to talk to you he said look we've been told that ever since we started working with you guys more or less the same time frame we're inundated w- w- with attacks and I said well look leave a with me we'll check out what's going on and what actually happened was it wasn't that the timeline uh, of dealing with us and working with us, it was that they had started dealing with a new large client. And that large client was a life science company, i.e. A, a, a company that experiments on animals and tests medical cures on animals and everything else like that. So hacktivists had started to attack the insurance company because they knew they were in their supply chain. So that, that's a real mundane example of what happens in a very complex way from a geopolitical point of view. If you're dealing with, with country A and, and I'm country B, I may not want to deal with you anymore because I, I'm the enemy, I'm their enemy and so on. Um, so all of these things have to be uh, understood so that they can be analyzed uh, and that you can make strategic decisions around that as well. Uh, um, and I've seen it time and time again with attacks on everything from gaming companies, um, financial service companies, everything else like that. This normally these days boils down to politics. If it's a substantial attack, an APT, something like that, it, it, you're always going to find that there, there's uh, ideology involved and there's, there's nationalism involved. And we have to remember, George, a lot of these hackers, even going back you know, five years, 10 years ago, was about national pride. These hackers were, were equivalent to being on the Olympic team of their country. They, they were doing it for their country, for their pride. So when we saw lots of hacking coming in from China and so on like that, and still do, obviously, um, that a lot of this was about nationalist pride. It wasn't about making money. It wasn't about scam artists. That stuff was coming from different regions, whether it was Russia, whether it was Nigeria, whatever, um, at different areas. But a lot of it was just about national all right, folks, we got to pause for some quick messages from our sponsors, but then we'll be right back with our special guest, advisor to global CISOs around the world, Mr. Paul Dwyer. Whatever you do, don't go away. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity.
Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Context Information Security knows that your development and engineering teams move quickly. Security testing should empower them, not slow them down. What you need is a solution that integrates their objectives and supports the bottom line. Getting your product out while protecting your customers and your brand. While traditional penetration testing is a great way to assure your systems after they've been built, it doesn't work for everyone. That's why at Context, we offer continuous security testing to help you build it right the first time. In fast-moving environments, continuous security testing allows your team to focus on the things that matter. Secure, agile development, speed of innovation, and building security into your products and systems from the ground up. Context has been helping organizations tackle the most complex security challenges for more than 20 years. Visit us today at contextis.com to learn more about how we can help you. As CISOs manage known malware attacks, they also contend with the unknown unknowns. With 24-7 Hacker Innovation, where do CISOs place their next security investment bet? Find the answer with Signet. With forums and public and private partnership dinners in Toronto, London, Singapore, Tokyo, and across the U.S., Signet is a mission-focused, purpose-driven global community advancing the next generation of cybersecurity solutions. As an entrepreneurial ecosystem super connector, Signet brings innovators, top cybersecurity professionals, solution providers, investors, and government executives into a collaborative alliance. Join Signet's global community to empower your organization and the industry to defeat hackers with cybersecurity's next generation of innovation. Learn more at Secure. Security-innovation.org or Google Signet S-I-N-E-T. Email is having an identity crisis. It's just too easy for attackers to spoof trusted brands or even the government. That's why over 80% of email attacks are based on fake identities. The solution is to stop the fakes before they get to the inbox. That's why enterprises use Valley Mail. It's a trusted identity-based email security solution. Find out if your domain can be spoofed and request a complete free phishing analysis at valleymail.com. In today's interconnected world, digital transformation is taking us on a journey towards exciting new ways to work, live, and communicate. In business, staying out in front of the competition means pushing the boundaries of the status quo and exploring the possibilities of the future. However, pushing forward into this fast-changing digital landscape brings a new level of uncertainty and risk that must be measured, understood, and managed. By delivering state-of-the-art cyber risk analytics, X-Analytics is setting the standard to bring business clarity to the complex cyber threats organizations face each and every day. When it comes to understanding your financial exposure to cyber risk, trust what the global cyber insurance industry and Fortune 500 companies trust. Trust X-Analytics to guide you through the uncertainty into cyber risk clarity. For more information about X-Analytics, visit our website today at x-analytics.com. That's x-analytics.com. X-Analytics, setting the standard in the enterprise cyber risk management. 
Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Redis. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's taskforce7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Redis. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. We're back with our special guest, the CEO of Cyber Risk International and the president of the International Cyber Threat Task Force, Mr. Paul Dwyer. So, Paul, I, I just want to follow up on one more question from the, from the last segment and in terms of adoptability and, and some of the parallels that we could take from the crisis that's going on right now into cybersecurity. I see, you know, look, if you look back on what's going on here in the last few weeks, and let's take the United States as, as an example, because I'm in the United States, and, and I see that we had one of the most powerful uh, economies in the world, had one of the most powerful militaries in the world, very strong country, still have, you know, a lot of these things. Um, but in, in the cybersecurity world, it seems that the predator is cyber threat actors and the businesses need to be extremely agile and they need to adopt or die. Just like the United States, just like other countries in the EU are doing right now, everybody's adopting, everybody's changing. The rules that applied before don't apply now. Right? And, and it, whether it's simple removing the red tape to get to a solution to get medical supplies or whatever it may be, do, you know, can you talk about the importance of flexibility and adaptability in cybersecurity and how businesses should react during, you know, whether it's, you know, normal course of business or during a crisis? Sure. I mean, I, I think, look, the, the world is innovating and the world is adapting and it's changing. If you think of things like Facebook being the biggest publishing company in the world, but they don't really create any material. You think of Airbnb being the biggest hotel chain in the world, but they don't own any buildings. Biggest logistics company, Uber, but they don't have any vehicles. You know, the, the world is changing. And, and, and those that, that have been innovative are the ones that are succeeding and staying ahead. And I think that the, one of the, the key principles, or one of the, the key um, goals and objectives of good cybersecurity is to be able to support your business's mission um, to innovate and to be able to deliver faster, better services, all of that good stuff to, to, to the clients that they want. Um, and, and I think that 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 the, the, the two things are then intrinsically linked. They're like two wheels on a car. They have to be completely aligned. Um, the business wants to go in one way. The, the cybersecurity risk program and cybersecurity program has to go along with that and has to adapt. Um, and look, part of that challenge then means that when you look at things, you say, well, look, I need to make this easier for our customers. The easier you make something, generally the less secure it becomes. So there's always this trade-off and this balance of, of being able to, to deal with these things and putting compensating controls and so on around that. Um, I, I think the strong survive. I, I don't think it's always the biggest uh, companies. I mean, even now, what's happening around COVID, um, we can see that, for example, our own solution uh, that, that we have, which is called CyberPrism, um, it's a collaborative tool, and that gives us an advantage against the big four in, in the world because, one, we're able to reach out much more agile uh, way uh, with the client, support them, and bring them through and, and uh, work in a remote fashion. Not all companies can do that. So I think change brings opportunity. 
And, um, you know, I think the Chinese have two words um, uh, for, 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 uh, for threat. One part of it is crisis and the other is opportunity. It's made up of two words. And I think in every crisis and in every challenge, there's an opportunity. Um, and I think COVID is no different than that and, and what's going on. The threat actors that, f- that face America um, probably more than anywhere else in the world um, um, because of what America represents as well you know, freedom, democracy, uh, success, all of those good things. Um, so, and where they're coming from, whether it, it's just, um, if you like, mundane pedestrian cyber criminals looking to make a quick book of uh, affluent people, they're going to be targeting America. If it's uh, ideological-based stuff and it's ISIS looking for a cyber caliphate, they're going to be attacking America. Um, you know, uh, if it's uh, economic... Uh, connection to, to some country that's trying to do trade deals and trying to get the, the back end of the story, they're going to be trying to, to, to attack America. Um, and, and that's, you know, uh, it, that's just the way it is. The, it, and, and to fight, uh, whether you're a business or whether you're a country, fighting against um, cyber adversaries, you have to think of it like a Venn diagram. You have to think of these circles overlapped. One of those circles may be cyber warfare elements. One of those may be cyber criminals. One of those may be um, cyber malfactors, such as pedophiles. Uh, some of those may be um, uh, script kiddies. And all of those circles overlap. And where they overlap is your adversary. That is where your enemy is. That's the person who's trying to get at you. It's a little bit of everything. You can't fight cyber threat actors on one beachhead. You can't fight it just on one silo. You have to be holistically joined up, just like the bad guys are. Because let me tell you how the bad guys work as well. I'm sure you're well aware of this, George. But, you know, they, they, they all collaborate. They all work together. Oh, yeah. They're, they're collaborating like Fortune yeah, 500 companies with no audit yeah, team, right? Absolutely. <laughs> and, and, like, you know, one, I, I always, the example I use with this is there was a company called Freedom Hosting, one of these bulletproof hosting companies. And they had the biggest repository ever. Of, of child abuse imagery ever found in the world. And that was found in Dublin. And it was the FBI were involved with local law enforcement here in finding that. But that's because they were also hosting um, material for ISIS, propaganda to groom people, to self-radicalize them online and so on like that. Um, so all of these bad guys, they don't care who they work with. They're just in it to make money. They have no morals. They have no ethics. So you'll get a pedophile working with, with, with a, a terrorist and a terrorist working with a criminal. And so on. You know, they all work together. The bad guys. Evil is connected. I mean, you know, um, uh, when we look at the internet itself, it's humanity connected. But because it's humanity connected, which is fantastic, is one of the greatest gifts we've ever had in a lifetime, uh, having the ability to connect everybody on the internet. But it also means that evil is connected. And, I, and we see that, obviously, on things like the dark web and, 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 and those kind of services and so on like that. But people of the same mindset will connect together. People that want to uh, orchestrate a particular agenda or a particular motivation will find like-minded people as sick or as criminal or as dark as they are to work with them on that front. So as the good guys, I mean, when I, when I founded the International Cyber Threat Task Force, one of the things we used to use was actually an Irish phrase, which is very apt today. Um, and our slogan was, and what that is, that's Gaelic or Irish for their strength in unity. And that's what that means. So all the bad guys are working together. We said, look, let's form an organization where all the good guys can work together. And straight away, I, I, I started building up lifelong relationships and friendships with people in America and all over the world and everything else like that, where we all had the same motivation, which was, let's disrupt these guys. Let's help train each other. Let's help teach each other. Let's share knowledge with the right kinds of people because knowledge is power. And the more knowledge we have, the more powerful and confident we are to deal with these guys and disrupt them and stay a step ahead of them. That's how they're doing it. They don't have 
the bureaucracy uh, uh, and the, the, the sort of um, uh, roles to jump through and the hoops to jump through from a corporate perspective that somebody else does when they're doing Intel sharing and so on like that. So that's why um, we, we founded that network as well uh, and it's been so successful for the last 10 years in all different uh, facets uh, to deal with those kind of organizations. And, and, I, and I think um, businesses, small medium, large, global enterprises, you've got to remember the, the bad guys don't work on one door. They don't work on one silo, on one beachhead. You, you're, you're defending against pedophiles if you're trying to stop credit card fraud. Yeah, you know, ISIS ran a cell here in Dublin, Ireland, uh, which funded the attacks in London on the London Bridge attack, and that was done through invoice fraud. They raised $2 million on invoice mm-hmm. fraud, running it, running it up from there. These guys are just so well-connected and, 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 uh, on that basis. So I think, you know, that's... That's what I, uh, final part of that message I'll say is, look, this is what we're trying to empower people when I'm talking to them and saying, look, guys, if you're going in and doing your job in cybersecurity, you're, you're not just stopping someone stealing credit card details. You're stopping someone blowing someone up. You're stopping someone uh, raping and abusing a child because all of these evil things are all connected. So you, you might think your job is mundane and that you're stopping this or you're, you're doing the firewall rules or you're patching or whatever. This is what you're stopping. You're stopping their ecosystem. Yeah, it's important, to, it's important to communicate that sense of purpose to these people. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean, and that gets back to the point we were talking about earlier about COVID and things like this. I mean, these systems that run, that, that, that run the payroll, that, that, that pay people so they can buy m- milk and food for their child, all of those kind of things, right? These are the, the machines, the systems that keep the world running. And it's up to people in IT and IT security, cybersecurity and so on like, to make sure they are not compromised during this, to make sure that they are stable. Um, and we don't leave the door open for, for stupid people and bad, evil people to take advantage of this situation and cause even bigger catastrophe and longer-term effects that will affect people's lives, not just their lifestyle, but their lives. So thinking about this in a way where you have 10,000 people in a business and you want all of them to be cybersecurity-minded because you need it all hands on deck to fight mm-hmm. this problem that you're describing right here. It just seems to me that creating a security culture in a business is really a lot more difficult than it seems. We, we keep saying we want to do it, but it just seems to be escaping us a lot and a lot of times. Um, so what, what do you think about that? How does a CISO go about making this happen in, a, in, a, in an organization? Look, it, it, where I see this coming from is I, I think there's one of these things where compliance became the problem. Because when compliance training comes in, compliance training, firstly, is boring. Right, mm. and it's tick box stuff, right? Mm. And then as an employee, they have to go through it. And they go, oh yeah, that's security compliance training thing. Got to do that, whatever. And they lose the will to live, right? And they look and they go <laughs> through all the stuff and they answer the questions the way they think they do that they should yeah. and everything else. Like that. Yeah, yeah. But let me give you this example: if somebody was to walk into the lobby of that business and they saw a suitcase sitting in the middle of the lobby and there was nobody near that suitcase, what's the first thing they would do? Right? They look at it and they they get worried and concerned about why is that sitting there. Right? And then right. they'd go over, maybe tell security or ask them and say, who owns that suitcase? Who owns that bag? Whatever. Now, why do we do that? We do that because we know that's dangerous. We know that there's potentially a risk associated with that. And that's because we're loyal to ourselves and the other people around us from physical, physical uh, impact of something like that and the kinetic effect of a bomb going off or something like that. Now, what we need to instill into our staff, our people, is loyalty, not compliance. Loyalty. Loyalty to the business so that they will be aware and they will be cyber aware and they'll say to themselves, hang on a second, that looks suspicious. And I know the impact of that is that it could bring down our entire network or it could have massive consequences. So I'm actually going to, I'm going to do something about it. I'm going to report it or I'm, I'm, going, to do, you know, I'm going to take action. In the same way, if they saw the suitcase, and they, I've always talked about these t- things about the the parallels and the differences 
between the cyber world that we have no choice but to have one foot in because we all have to live in, in the cyber world and the actual physical world that we actually find ourselves living in. Those two worlds are completely different, but yet they're connected. And what happens, you know, for, for example, if we look at the physical world, there's laws, there's social norms, there's consequences, everything else like that. So, for example, if, if I want to steal something off you, George, I have to physically get access. Uh, I, I get my hands on, on your laptop. I steal it. You notice that asset is gone right? Uh, you can then investigate what, where, who took your laptop. You look at CCTV, there's an investigation, law enforcement gets involved. And guess what? You have probably uh, transferred the risk of losing that asset to an insurance company and you have it insured. That's all in the real physical world when it comes to crime and everything else like that. But in the cyber world, if I want to steal from you and I steal your data, you won't even know I've taken it because I'll just copy it. And even if you did spot that I've taken it, what's the chances of finding the bad guy who's, who's on, you know, gone through 15 proxy servers, he, he's hopped in and out of different jurisdictions, how can law enforcement get involved? They say nobody's been hurt, you know, what's the consequences and all those kind of things. And, and then the motivations. If I physically stole your laptop, I was doing that because maybe I thought I was going to sell it and I was going to make a couple hundred dollars or something like that. But in the, in the other world, um, where it's about personas and so on, you might have a meek and mild individual. Uh, a shy child, effectively. Mm. Uh, maybe on the spectrum, maybe has Asperger's or something like that. And I'm not saying this in, in a bad way. I'm saying this because this is the profile of these super brain intelligent people who end up on the dark side because they're playing around and they're playing with the challenge of breaking into things and hacking into things. And unfortunately, the way society uh, deals with those guys is we, we, we throw them in jail and we throw them in prison. And that's they go to criminal university and then those criminals take advantage of them and use their skills to do even more crimes. You know, so I, I think there's many parallels, but many massive differences. And, 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 and we, we saw that through when Anonymous was in full swing and in full power. Um, the people that they were finding were these really, you know, I, I often say, like, it, it's like if you stop kids who have those fantastic brains that want to work out, pull things apart, work out how to make it faster, how to, be how to make it better, how does it actually work, all those kind of things. They're the people you want to groom uh, and you want to get on, involved. And I mean groom from the point of view of making them cyber good guys um, and get them involved. J just like they, they've done in Israel where, where they're spotting these talented children at a very early age. Uh, they're bringing them on a path that then they're conscripting them into the army and hence why Israel is doing so well in the cyber front, not just military-wise, but commercially you've got all these guys now popping out of of military uh, at age 22 or thereabouts and, and they're all starting their cybersecurity companies and everything else like that um so there's a, there's a lot to digest there um I, I think society has to wake up and find out that look if you take away a piano from a mozart you're not going to get a mozart so you need to let people who are gifted in this way um play with the tools whatever age they are, if they're gifted in this space, if they're coders, if they're, if they're hackers, if they, if they want to do these things, they need to be able to get their hands on, 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 on this kind of, of stuff, but, but uh, protect them from the consequences of going to the dark side. And you do that by teaching them the morality and ethics of what they're playing with. So I want to talk a little bit about risk and CISOs. Um, you advise CISOs all, all over the world, and I think risk is a really big part of their job. A lot of times, I think in some of these job descriptions, risk is completely lacking. <laughs> it's non-existent in some of these uh, CISO wrecks uh, around and some of these, even some of the bigger companies. But effective CISOs really map the residual risk of controls back to their business objectives. And this is a language that the board understands. The board understands a common lexicon of risk. And meaningful metrics, as opposed to all this technical noise, 
really empowers the board to make good decisions. They understand what's going on. They're able to make critical decisions and they're able to allocate budgets and also helps the CISO gain credibility because you're just not going in there and, and screaming that the world's coming to an end and using fear as a tactic to gain money uh, and to gain budget. But so how does a CISO determine what metrics should be really communicated to the board and how the net message should be crafted? And I also want to ask you, if, if a CISO is not a risk professional, can they even begin to do their job? Great questions that I'm glad you asked me for because it's actually the core of what we actually do from a business point of view. So, so I can talk ad nauseum about this. I mean, um, look, look, what we see is, is as you've outlined there, um, generally, um, scissors were going into the board and they were talking about things like, you know, hey, we've got 50,000 level five vulnerabilities. And what does that mean to a business person? If you're working in a bank and you're going in and you're bringing that narrative, um, so what is the response? That's what's mm. going to the brain of the person, the busy person that's in that board. And they just go, so what? What does that actually mean? So meaningful metrics is when you're actually able to tie any residual risk identified back to the key objectives of the business. So if the business objective is it wants to run out a new app or it wants to get X thousand customers onto an online system and, and you've identified that there are cyber risks around that and you're able to quantify those, not subjectively, but empirically actually put numbers on those and have science behind it, transparent science behind it, then the business will eat that up. They will love it and you will get every piece of support you need from the leaders of that business and you're empowering the leaders to do their job. I always say the answer to the cyber challenge is leadership. But if we're not informing our leaders correctly so that they can make those informed decisions and we're just giving them, you know, basically bull metrics about Hey, you know, I think we should buy this new system because it, it, it's it's $100,000 and it'll give us a better handle on intelligence feeds. What does that mean? Like, again, the, 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 you know, these are costs on the bottom line of a business. And, and um, I, I always use the example of when I started off in my career and I was working as an IT manager in a, in, a, in, a, in a legal practice. And I remember a guy outlining to me, he says, no matter how good you are, you're no different than the cleaners in this office because you're a cost to the bottom line. You're not a lawyer. <laughs> and that hit home. And I said, yeah, you're actually dead right. So unless I can actually um, communicate value to the business, and under, then, then they're not going to back you. They're not going to support you. So that was a good lesson I learned early on in my career. You have, to, you have to be able to articulate that value back to the business of why they should be investing in cybersecurity and cyber risk. And let me just talk a little bit there, George, if I may, about the difference I see between cybersecurity and, and cyber risk. First of all, cyber, if we take that word to mean everything on the internet, everything computer-based, security literally means free from risk. So how can we? use cyber? How can we use the internet? How can we use Wi-Fi? How can we use 5G, AI, machine learning, big data, all of these things, and be free from risk? It's mm. not possible. It's an oxymoron at best, right? Right. Uh, uh, so uh, what I believe is the solution is, and what our company, Cyber Risk International, do is we marry the principles of security with risk management. So what we're about is actually saying, look, all these security practices around confidentiality, integrity, and availability, and how do you marry that off with a risk management program so that the business will understand it? Um, and the amount of CISOs I've met, and they'll work, let's say, for example, in a bank or something like that, and you say, uh, so, so what does the business do? Oh, we're a bank. Well, that's great. So, so what do you do? How do you make money? Well, we're a bank. Yeah, but how do you make money? If you don't know how the business operates, how are you protecting it? How are you a business protection officer? How are you actually converging uh, uh, the risks? Uh, from well, this is, this is so true. It's just hitting home with me because yeah. I got to tell you, a lot of people out there are saying, oh, I'm business aligned. They don't even know what business aligned means. No, nah, it's just a term. 
to them. Yeah. Just, yeah. Once you scratch the surface with these guys, uh, uh, you know, and, and you can tell the, the, the good guys from the, from, from the, from the bad ones pretty quickly, because if you understand how a business operates, you know, what's important to that business. You know, that what customer data is important to the business, what intellectual property, what, what makes up the business value chain of that business? Who are the key suppliers? Who are the t- tier one suppliers? Um, you, you know, who are the key employees? What are the key parts of the business? Do you have a research and development uh, place? Because maybe the security there should be a lot higher than it is in your marketing department. You know, and, and these are very, very quick ways to find out whether somebody actually has a, a cyber risk program aligned with their business strategy. Um, and when they have, they're doing it very well. And they're the guys, when we go back to adapt to die, they're the guys who are thriving, not just surviving, but thriving because they're able to take advantage of fintech, regtech, everything. They're, they're, they're digital transformation. They're reinventing themselves from being bricks and mortar banks in, in, into being, you know, online, you know, fintech heroes. Um, and, and, but none of that is possible without good cybersecurity and good cyber risk management. Yeah, I mean, I think the guys that articulate the risk of their business right off the cuff are the guys who really know what they're doing. Uh, absolutely. You know, and it's one of these things I talk about in a paradigm shift. And I, I, look, I, I lose friends with, with the next thing I'm going to say, which is, you know, cybersecurity doesn't belong to the CISA, uh, to, to, to the chief information security officer. It belongs to the CEO. Um, the board has accountability in, in managing what's going on. But the CISA's role is to make sure then all of that stuff is happening within the organization. But ultimately, the CEO, the leader of that business, um, is ultimately responsible for what's going on. And I, I, I always feel that cybersecurity should be integrated as part of the enterprise risk management program. It has to feed into that. And you can't have, uh, again, I'm going to lose friends with this, right? But look, <laughs> you can't have your CISO working under your CIO. You, you know, that, that's poacher gamekeeper stuff. You know, I mean, how can you have your security officer um, who, who generally may, depending on the organizational structure, because, and this is where the nuances come in, um, but depending on the organizational structure, may be carrying risk, compliance, and governance. And yet the CIO is trying to drive in innovation and do things to keep lights on and keep systems going. Where should they the report com- to? Which, which yeah, exactly. Well, well, enterprise risk manager are ultimately the board and, and the CEO. So, I mean, what, what, what I always find from an organizational governance oversight structure is that you, you can't have the conscience of the business in relation to security, risk, compliance, governance, um, having to, at their line manager, having to be the one that they're trying to report on, essentially, and be able to say, hey, um, this is wrong, but you're my boss, so go ahead. You know, and, and this gets back into baking in cybersecurity. I mean, I, I, again, one of the analogies I use is cybersecurity is like baking a cake. You can put all the icing on it, make it look great, but as soon as you taste it, if there's one ingredient wrong, you'll know. Um, and the minute you look at a cyber risk program, a cybersecurity program, you find out, did they just put a load of gloss on this? Is it lipstick on a pig? Um, you know, have they just handed out all these freshly done up template policies and everything else like that? Or let's look at level four evidence. Are they actually running the system? Are they actually running a management program here? Are they creating evidence that they're doing change management? Are they creating evidence that they're actually, uh, they've got effective, you know, change control in place and so on. Uh, and they're the pieces that actually prove um, and cut the wheat from the chaff in relation to are these guys doing the right thing and, 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 and doing the right kind of job uh, uh, for their businesses. Um, so it's, um, it, you know, I, I think organizational structure has a huge part to play in this because if those lines of oversight and governance are not effective, communication is not effective, um, then you're, you've got the tail trying to wag the dog, George. I mean, you know, you've got an IT, head of IT security effectively who has a limited budget, uh, limited articulation of what the real issues are <laughs> and how they affect business coming out of that. And, and that's the tail trying to wag the dog. There's no right. other way. It has to come from the top down. 
It's a leadership role. And, uh, you know, that, that term CISO, CISO, as, as, as we use it differently in, in the, the U.S. and Europe and everywhere else, it means different things in different organizations. A lot of the times, it's just the guy who's been there for 20 years. Um, and, and he didn't progress with his or her, his or her career, but they've been in IT. And right. they never went beyond the scope of the systems in that particular organization for 20 years. They, ha they haven't um, got that cross-discipline um, of knowledge that's required to be a CISO. A CISO these days is as much a salesperson as a politician, as a subject matter expert. And it's a business leader position. I mean, you know, that, that's what it is at the end of the day. I and mean, that person needs to be able to sell ideas within the organization, sell their thoughts, why things should be done a certain way, um, to be able to work, to be able to collaborate, to be able to join people together with different opinions, to be able to support and understand the business model. That's not always the, 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 the IT-centric um, uh, expert. That's sometimes a person with a big personality, sometimes a person that's good with people, a good communicator, good business uh, head on them, uh, all of that kind of stuff, you know? And they're very important skills that a CISO should have. And, you know, one of the things we run is a CISO boot camp, and we often take people on uh, to identify where those shortcomings are so that they can work on them themselves and, and, and uh, uh, become a fully fledged or fully rounded CISO. All right, Paul, we're going to take another short break to hear from our sponsors, but don't go away, folks. We'll be right back with our special guest, the CEO of Cyber Risk International, Mr. Paul Dwyer. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Context Information Security knows that your development and engineering teams move quickly. Security testing should empower them, not slow them down. What you need is a solution that integrates their objectives and supports the bottom line. Getting your product out while protecting your customers and your brand. While traditional penetration testing is a great way to assure your systems after they've been built, it doesn't work for everyone. That's why at Context, we offer continuous security testing to help you build it right the first time. In fast-moving environments, continuous security testing allows your team to focus on the things that matter. Secure, agile development, speed of innovation, and building security into your products and systems from the ground up. Context has been helping organizations tackle the most complex security challenges for more than 20 years. Visit us today at contextis.com to learn more about how we can help you. As CISOs manage known malware attacks, they also contend with the unknown unknowns. With 24-7 Hacker Innovation, where do CISOs place their next security investment bet? Find the answer with Signet. With forums and public and private partnership dinners in Toronto, London, Singapore, Tokyo, and across the U.S., Signet is a mission-focused, purpose-driven global community advancing the next generation of cybersecurity solutions. As an entrepreneurial ecosystem super connector, Signet brings innovators, top cybersecurity professionals, solution providers, investors, and government executives into a collaborative alliance. Join Signet's global community to empower your organization and the industry to defeat hackers with cybersecurity's next generation of innovation. Learn more at security-innovation.org or Google Sinet, S-I-N-E-T. 
Email is having an identity crisis. It's just too easy for attackers to spoof trusted brands or even the government. That's why over 80% of email attacks are based on fake identities. The solution is to stop the fakes before they get to the inbox. That's why enterprises use Valley Mail. It's a trusted identity-based email security solution. Find out if your domain can be spoofed and request a complete free phishing analysis at valleymail.com. In today's interconnected world, digital transformation is taking us on a journey towards exciting new ways to work, live, and communicate. In business, staying out in front of the competition means pushing the boundaries of the status quo and exploring the possibilities of the future. However, pushing forward into this fast-changing digital landscape brings a new level of uncertainty and risk that must be measured, understood, and managed. By delivering state-of-the-art cyber risk analytics, X-Analytics is setting the standard to bring business clarity to the complex cyber threats organizations face each and every day. When it comes to understanding your financial exposure to cyber risk, trust what the global cyber insurance industry and Fortune 500 companies trust. Trust X-Analytics to guide you through the uncertainty into cyber risk clarity. For more information about X-Analytics, visit our website today at x-analytics.com. That's x-analytics.com. X-Analytics, setting the standard in the enterprise cyber risk management. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Redis. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's taskforce7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Redis. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. We're back with our special guest, the CEO of Cyber Risk International and the president of the International Cyber Threat Task Force, Mr. Paul Dwyer. So, Paul, I want to ask you something that's really, really important, and I want to talk about how we protect some of the vulnerable people um, that, that online. You know, how do we protect these people? How do we make sure that they're not taken advantage of? And let's start right out of the gate with the, the general question. You know, how do we protect our children online? Okay, George. So, th- there's, there's probably quite a few uh, answers to this question that the, the general answer I, I, I give to people uh, around this is that I feel that we need to learn from uh, the lessons w- w- we've actually um, gained from road safety. Um, and that would be that they, they refer to them as the three E's, you know, you've got engineering, you've got um, education and you've got enforcement. Um, and, and I always draw the parallel to that when you're working with arts and crafts with your child for the first time, you hand them a scissors. What's the first thing you do? And, of course, what you do is you explain to them how to use it safely. And then you monitor them. 
and you make sure everything's okay until they gain the confidence and you gain the confidence that everything is okay and then they move on to the next level and they, they work with craft knives or whatever and blah, blah, blah. And they work down that base. So when you look at that from a child's perspective, I find it crazy that people hand a child an iPad or a smartphone and yet they don't give them any safety instructions or they don't put any guidelines around them or monitor them and what's going on. All children have a different maturity level, uh, a different vulnerability level uh, to, to how they may act or how they may become victims online. Um, so I think it's down to parenting skills, but, but guided by um, an education program, um, enforcement of that uh, in relation to, to any things that may happen. And then on the engineering side, I think there's so much more could be done. Um, and, and I think not just in relation to the safety of children, but the safety of all of us online. Um, I've often talked about the, 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 the fact around, like, why aren't we blocking devices on the uh, on the internet, um, I mean, when you look at something like um, cyberbullying, uh, and it, it, it's horrendous. It, it sounds innocuous. So cyberbullying, how how hard is that word? It's horrible. It's horrible, and the consequences of it: teen suicides. Um, you know. It, it is, children that feel there's no other way out but to end their own life and when you see how I'll, I'll go into a little bit actually George here just to actually explain how some of this stuff works because when you see it you see the darkness that's involved around this when when a child is being bullied and they're brought to the next stage and you see that the child when they saw that they had no other option was actually not when they were being threatened but when the bad guy or the threat actor threatened their, threatened their parents and said they were going to kill their parents or they're going to tell their, their parents and embarrass their parents about something, it was at that stage the child saw that there was no other option out. Um, and unfortunately, I've been involved in investigating quite a few of these things. And, and uh, it's just horrible when, when you see that side of humanity, how somebody was, was that dark. And even when you look at it on um, the, these, these pro-ana sites, these uh, sites about anorexia, promoting anorexia in, in young girls especially, uh, and they're lovely, warm sites. They invite them on. They start talking to them in psychological yeah. terms to make them feel comfortable, saying, hey, bones are beautiful. You don't want horrible flesh on you. And all that kind of stuff. They'll get them down to about 500 calories a day. They'll do that for a few weeks. When you're on 500 calories a day, um, you, your brain doesn't work properly. Yeah, you're delusional. And when your brain doesn't work yeah. properly, yeah, then they invite them into a suicide forum. Then they bring them into a suicide forum. The sick people, and, and sick these, people out there. These are sick Sick people, and and I think like what the technology facilitates us in so many great things in life. But but as parents, and and as anybody that wants to protect maybe somebody vulnerable online, we need to we need to think about that that connection I talked about earlier on about the real world and the cyber world. So would you do it in the in the, you're doing it in the cyber world, but would you do it in the real world? So in other words, would you put a picture of your child up on uh, the the local high street? Uh, for any stranger walking by to have a look at. So why are you doing it in the cyber world? Why are you posting these things up on social media? You know, why are you giving out, why are you leaking out intel and information about yourself so you can be doxxed, controlled, and maybe you become a victim um, of, of something online or your children get bullied because you're putting out something about your lifestyle online and that's been brought back in. It's like bullying by proxy almost. Um, that's been brought into the, the school uh, uh, playground effectively because somebody says, oh, did you see what, what, what young Jimmy's parents were up to? Right. And, and so for, for the parents listening out there, docs means when somebody takes all your information and spreads it out to the world so everybody knows where you live and encourages where they can encourage them more harassment to you and things like that. But I want to, I want, we're talking about so many things here. I want to focus on, you said something very interesting. And I think I'd like to know what your experience is talking to organizations about blocking devices instead of just blocking accounts so that people can create these new accounts and just come back and keep harassing people or doing, you know, doing evil on the internet, so to speak. So can you talk a little bit about that? What's your, why are we not blocking devices instead of accounts? 
share price. The share price of these social media giants is driven by how many users they have. We're tied up on numbers. And how many million, billion users do I have? Because that's going to make them sound fantastic. So the really? last thing they want to do is to become the, the self-regulated police force and drive their user numbers down in any way because that will drive their share price down. So, yeah, so, it's, 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 I mean, so, so parents understand there's a way that you could actually uh, block the IMEI numbers to, to devices. So if someone's using a certain cell phone, they're harassing you know, your son or your daughter. And, and, and for instance, Facebook finds that, you know, that this is true, that they are actually harassing people. They can actually block their device, which means that they have to go, go use a different device, which is a lot, lot more inconvenient for the, the harasser Absolutely. than it is to actually just set up a new account and start harassing people again. Right. Exactly, because I mean that's that's literally what happens. I mean, you know, so the the, the guys, the bad guys, account gets blocked. He's been harassing someone. Um, he gets blocked. Big deal. He, it takes him two minutes to set up another account. Now, the, the Facebooks of this world, and everybody else knows exactly um, that the behavior and the analytics of what's going on with that person. They know that they're doing to lots of different people as well, whether they're on Twitter, Facebook, or whatever uh, uh, social network we want to talk about. Um, so they have the power and ability to detect this kind of a. a anomalous rogue behavior and not just block the account but stop them from setting up new accounts or indeed block their device potentially and if there was cooperation between let's say for example the mobile telcos and the social media giants um, then all of a sudden uh, there might be three strikes in your route rules I always think this would be a great idea that, that I put forward say well look give them three warnings um, that the, their behavior is not appropriate in, in this online playground that we call the internet and if you do it three times your 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 brand new iPhone is going to stop working. And guess what? It's worthless to resell or do anything with it. So let's talk about monitoring the kids for a second, right? So you talked about, well, you talked about one thing. You said, hey, look, you know, we're not teaching our kids about you know, using the internet in general, whether it be on a desktop or a mobile device. And you teach them how to use scissors. You teach them if they're using, you know, they're learning arts and crafts. How do they hold the scissors? How do they walk with the scissors? You know, make sure they don't cut anybody, make sure they don't hurt themselves. But when, you get, when it comes to iPhones and smartphones and mobile devices, you kind of just give them the phone and say, hey, this is how you take a picture or this is how you call me. Or, like, there's no security, like, uh, uh, I guess, uh, briefing from parents. Yeah. You know, there's no, why is that? Why do people have that mindset that they're really, you know, they don't understand the dangers around the mobile phone and what, what it, how it can expose their ch children to the real world out there, which sometimes isn't so nice. I, there's probably a couple of different reasons for this. One is obviously parents tend to be very, very busy. The, these, these days with different challenges going on. The comfort thing to hand a child to play a game or do whatever is generally one of these devices or whatever. And maybe the parents haven't been educated as to what the real risks are but, because the parents care. And as soon as you explain to a parent that, that yeah, that, that, you know, hey, by the way, um, you know when your child is in the bedroom and you think they're really safe and they're, and, and they're playing in there, um, that a bad guy, a predator, is able to groom that child, whether it's in a computer game or whether it's online or whatever. They know exactly the, the GPS coordinates of where the child is sitting, standing, and everything else like that. And, and one of the stories I reference when I'm talking to people about this is, and this is going back about seven or eight years, you know, and, and apps were sort of just really, really taken off on smartphones and so on like that. And, and we investigated an app that was becoming very popular with children in the United States. And it was one of these very simple, straightforward games where, hey, what's your top 10 soccer teams? What's your top 10 bands you're into? All this kind of stuff. But what we found was that in the back end was being rented out to pedophiles that they could actually pay to to go into the back end and go into a drop-down list and say, I want a list of Caucasian uh, male 
uh, boys between the age of eight and 11 in this area, and I would do a short list. Then they got the profiles based on, on these questionnaires, and they were able to then create fake IDs saying, hey, my favorite band is X. Hey, my favorite soccer team is Y. And they were halfway down the grooming path to create an online friendship with these guys. <laughs> now, that story scares parents, and it should, because it's real and it's true. And that's nothing compared to what really goes on uh, out there in the challenges that parents face with that piece. So the last thing you want to do is scare children from technology. We, you know, we live in the information age, but we need to be able to do these things safely and securely and to make them cyber savvy. When, when, when does their uh, innate instincts kick in from a cyber that something is wrong? This doesn't feel right. In the same way, if you walk into a dark part of town or, or you, you feel so, you just get that physical presence of, hey, there's something not quite right here. And you need to instill that in children that they should not trust everything they see online. Um, and, you know, and, and all of those are different techniques around the different risks that, that, that can be for them. And let them build up their confidence. Let them fall. Let them get back up. Let, the, let them understand of how they're going to embrace this kind of technology and not become a huge victim uh, to, to something like this. And maybe be a horrendous uh, case of, of being a victim um, and pay the ultimate price. So everyone has a right to privacy, including children. And, you know, Sharon, I want to ask you a question about should parents be able to monitor and record everything that a child does on the internet without their knowledge up until the age of 17? And, and this includes what they do on their smartphones, what they do on their desktop computers. I mean, at what age does that right to privacy kick in or does it? Does it? Really? Well, I, mean, I, 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 I think that I think that's probably an unwritten contract between a parent and their child. I think whatever gets legislated in different countries around the world, and that that age changes, and it's it's different in every country uh, under GDPR law and so on as well. Um, that um, I, I think that becomes. I think first of all, parents never stop worrying about the kids. I know my mother worries about me. <laughs> so I mean, I think that they're always going to be concerned and worried about what what's going on. Um, I think that the 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 Trusting your child, um, providing your child with privacy, it is a human right to be able to do those things. And, and whether it's the kind of parent that would go in and read their, their, their diary uh, and, and go through something private like that, or whether it's doing it for a reason and just want to have the ability to, to protect them from something, I think that's a balancing act. And, and maybe almost on a case-by-case basis, depending on the child, what stage they're going through with life. Uh, how they're behaving, all of those kind of things as well, I think are things to be factored in place. I think it's a very hard thing to legislate. And the last thing we want to do is maybe rely on a lawmaker to give us a hard rule on how to uh, raise our children. Um, yeah, no I, doubt. I, I mean, if you look at it this way, if you're 15, if you have a 15 year old child, they can't, they're not allowed to drive, they're not allowed to vote, they're not allowed to, to drink, they're not allowed to do anything yeah. really, um, <laughs> you know, without a parent's permission. So to say that they have all these, privacy rights where you can't monitor what they're doing sort of counterintuitive to me but you, you know you're basically saying okay here here to your 15 year old go out into the world in the virtual world which actually leads to all the bad things out there in the world too right you can go out to be unguided in, in this area where they have no experience and they can be taken advantage of i don't i don't know that uh you know the privacy yeah, rights yeah, no. well here with some of the people in the united states i mean i don't i, I just don't get it i know that yeah, I, I, I think that, look, it, it, there's a challenge for society there. And, and that challenge isn't just um, a, a parent and a child, but it's how we're going to handle things now. I mean, you look at things like the dark web uh, and, and there's good and bad parts to it, you know, from, from being able to remain anonymous and all that good stuff or whatever, right? But if you look at things like, say, for example, uh, a, a young child, I'm not, I'm not, not 
promoting or suggesting this in any way. But they may be at a certain stage of their development in life that they want to experiment with weed or, 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 or entry-level drugs or something like that. Uh, now, should they go to the nasty part of town, physical town, um, potentially uh, be, be sold poison, um, potentially be beaten up, robbed, or worse, um, or should they go on to a, a customer uh, care-driven website on the dark web, uh, which is run by a community of professional, um, illegitimate, illegal um, uh, vendors of drugs, but work off a community rating of how good their customer care is and will make sure that they get uh, proper uh, weed, proper drugs, it's not poison because they work off their community rating. That's essentially what Silk Road was. We've we got to remember, Silk Road did over a billion in its first year as a marketplace. Uh, but, you know, the, 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 this area of this world of cybercriminality brings along entrepreneurs as well. But I think for society, you got to think, well, well, do I want to know that they got weed from, from somewhere that was uh, safe and secure or that they went in and got robbed or killed uh, trying to buy drugs off somebody? Um, and there's lots of these impacts that are coming with the technology because they're changing how society works and operates. So what do you think about GPS tracking? I mean, there, we, a lot of folks, especially look, high-profile families use uh, GPS tracking in their executive protection uh, strategies yeah. with their ch- kids all the time. And that's not only a one. I mean, when I'm talking about GPS, I'm talking about chips and shoes, chips and watches, chips and backpacks, sure. uh, you know, uh, little birds on a, on underneath the well of a car wheel. So the, these types of things, you, you can, having them all together at one time can be very helpful, especially in a crisis where a kid goes missing or mm-hmm. God forbid kidnapped or something like that. But in the general use of these things from a parent, just to know where your kids are and their safety, what's your thoughts on it? Um, I, I think it's a great question at, at this part of the interview because it sort of ties in some of the things we've been talking about. You know, it, it talks about, you know, it's bringing in the Snowden piece, it's bringing in um, privacy, it's bringing in all these kind of issues. But but I think that really maybe the bullet has already left the gun or the genie's left the bottle in relation to um, GPS tracking because we're all carrying a mass surveillance device around with us all day long, uh, it being a smartphone. Um, the Internet of Things means that we're now buying these things and bringing them into our home with no security on them, putting TVs on, uh, with microphones, with cameras, uh, all listening and tracking all our behavior, everything else like that. So I, I think it's very difficult for someone not to be tracked in some way, whether it's by someone they know or whether it's anonymously by a large corporation that is uh, tracking and selling their data um, uh, on a behavior piece. I, I think ironically, when you look at things like COVID that we talked about earlier, um, how useful would it be if you know somebody like Google or Facebook was able to come out and say, well, there's an affected patient and there's all the places they've been in the last two weeks and there's all the people they've been beside in the last two weeks. Wouldn't that be cool? Isn't that a, wouldn't that be a nice use of technology? Um, so I think there's always going to be a trade-off uh, in society uh, um, uh, w- with those kind of things for what they're, they're going to be used. Um, I think it's way too easy uh, for companies like FlexiSpy and so on to be selling uh, their services and outright, outrageously saying that they are to surveil other adults. They're, they're not even under the guise to pretend that it's um, to, to protect a child or something like that. They're basically saying, catch your cheating spouse, put this software on, um, GPS track them, listen to their phone calls, do all of that good stuff. I mean, that, that kind of stuff is just outrageous. So what should we, we should be teaching our kids in school? Should we be teaching them about encryption? Should we be teaching them about, I mean, I, 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 what, what's the first things that we should teach them in terms of cybersecurity on the internet? I think we should, te- we should certainly teach them the principle of what privacy is um, and why it's so important to all of us um, and why a violation of privacy, why, why it might not be a physical act, can be a very hurtful act. 
um, and there can be huge real consequences to it because what, 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 when, when you uh, what, when you invade and they're the words we use invade privacy because you're actually entering a, a, an area that somebody may may never recover from their, their their privacy being invaded to a certain level they may never feel secure again um, and I think if they understand and, and they, they were taught on, on what it is why it's so important why we all should cherish it and the consequences of it that maybe it's easier to teach them then how to use technology appropriately um, because um, th they would understand the consequences of running into a shower, taking a picture of another student, and then posting it up online, or um, you know those kind of things at the Guam, which are may sound at the time or feel like you know simple pranks, but they may have have ongoing consequences to somebody and and and, and really hurt them uh, in in a, a long term place. You know, so I think there's um, certainly the privacy piece. I think we should teach them some key principles of security. And I'm talking about the basics here, George. I'm talking about, you know, um, uh, why it's important to patch devices. In the same way, we teach them how to wash their hands. Let's teach them cyber hygiene. Let's teach them what is encryption and why it's important. Um, so that they're not just following a list of do's and don'ts, but they're understanding the principles. If they understand the principles, they can work it out themselves. So in some countries uh, in, in Europe, I'm pretty sure you know better than me, it's illegal to post a picture of your child on social media. Mm -hmm. and, and you can even go to jail, I think, over there um, in, uh, in some instances. But in the United States, this is a common occurrence. People post pictures of their kids on social media every single day. That's yeah. um, a huge contrast in the way people think about things. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, well, I, I've, I've always struggled to get my head around why people want to post every single thing about themselves, their whole life up online. And, and as I've read and studied more about it, I understand that people are building this other persona of themselves, that, 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 you know, how many followers they have, how many likes they get, all those things. And the consequences of that are obviously, um, there's a lot of mental health issues. That, that are driving around that as well because people don't put pictures themselves, they put filtered pictures of themselves. And then they're sort of living a lie because they know that's not really them. So they never feel like all of those likes were theirs. They were this other version of themselves, the virtual version of themselves. And they start living almost this double life, which causes a huge amount of psychological pressure and stress on an individual doing that kind of stuff. And I think that, you know, parents, this all happens so fast. You know, the, 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 the untake of the internet, smartphones, the technology, Wi-Fi, and now 5G, uh, just on the cusp and everything else like that, that all these things are here, um, that, that there hasn't been a chance for society or people to catch their breath and go, hang on a second, I'm playing with all this stuff, but I don't know the consequences of playing with it. Um, I'm using a smartphone, but I didn't realize it's tracking everything I'm doing, including my health information, what speed I drive, everything else like that. Um, and, and it's working out my whole personality um, effectively every day. So I think everybody needs a certain degree of education as to what this is. Um, and I, I, I think in the same way that, you know, um, maybe from like the way we look at food and drugs um, and the way they have to be um, uh, uh, labeled and they have to be um, uh, quantified as to the potential impacts they may have on you and what they do and so on like that. I think technology isn't far off that it, that it should be like that. Um, and say, well, look, if you do this, it may have the following impact on you psychologically. Uh, you may get addicted to it. I mean, you know this thing about, I'm sure you're aware of this thing called ludic loops. Uh, and this is this technology that they built into all of these apps to make us uh, completely addicted to them. Um, so the fact that we go into our LinkedIn 100 times a day to look what updates there are, or our Twitter account or whatever, that, that's psychologically playing a trick on us called a ludic loop, which is built into 
into slot machines, one-armed bandits, all that good stuff. And, and, and it's a reward mechanism of our brain. And it's why some of the top leaders of these social media companies have effectively left and said, look, we knew we were doing this nasty trick on people. We knew we were making you addicted to this technology, but this is wrong. Paul, uh, should, should, should parents be allowed to post pictures of their children on social media without their permission? And, you know, and then that obviously begs the question, at what age are they able to give permission? But in general, should they be able to post social uh, uh, pictures? I don't think that. I, I, I personally think it, it maybe in, in private groups or something that maybe that, that, that there's a level that they could do that on. I just don't see the need or the why and the risk is too great of why you would do it out on, on a blanket internet piece of, of posting pictures there because then it, it, it's just where's the right and wrong culturally? You know, what's acceptable in one country isn't acceptable in another. You know, you can go to vending machines in Japan and, and buy uh, little girls' panties. You know, uh, so, so, but that's culturally okay there, but, but, but it, that would freak us all out in the, in the U.S. or in Ireland. Um, so it, we're trying to create a, a, a status quo or, or a rule base for the entire world that will fit in with religion, with cultures, with background, with history, with everything. Um, personally, as a parent, I, 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 I would not be into posting lots of pictures of children up online and don't see why somebody would want to. So maybe uh, it's a general rule that the, the, the takeaway is if, if, the, if the, the account is public, maybe not such a great idea. If the account is private with only people that you know and that you're familiar with and family members and friends and things like that, maybe it's okay. Is that yeah, and it, more it, acceptable? It, it Absolutely. I mean, if you look, George, at no. things like smoking, you know, now people frown upon and look at people if they smoke like, the, you know, they're, they're an axe murderer, you know, um, drink driving, not acceptable socially, right? So, so maybe those, the way those social norms change within society should change online and people should frown upon uh, almost people when they're posting pictures like that and then go, look, why are you doing that? You, you, you know, why, why, why are you posting pictures of your kids online? Because it's just manifesting itself and it's feeding into it. And then the other parent does it, the other parent does it and so on like that. But maybe within a closed group, it's a great way to share pictures of a birthday party within a family unit or something like that. But publicly, I just can never understand the justification for why somebody would just put the pictures of the children up uh, publicly uh, uh, on, a, on a public forum. One, one last question. And I want to ask you when people give, when parents give their kids cell phones, should they give their child a cell phone without any type of the monitoring device on it so that they know what apps they were getting access to, what they were doing, who they were talking to? Um, because it's just not enough to uh, – some of the controls there that they put that are on the cell phone that come with this aren't enough mm. to really know what the child is doing with that phone uh, all day while you're not with them. If they go to school, if you give them the phones, I know some obviously they can't carry the – the phones into the classrooms in a lot of schools um, in the United States, they have to leave them in their lockers, but mm -hmm. still they have access to this phone for a great deal of time that they're not with you. Mm -hmm. Is it, is it responsible to give them the phone, but not know what they're doing with it? You're exposing them to the real world out there. Yeah, I, I think on balance, and again, it's a hard to have a, a hard and fast rule in this, but I think on balance, you, you would a bit like when we're giving the scissors to the child and you want to monitor them, make sure they're doing it safely and everything else like that, and then maybe monitor less and less and less as it goes on and they establish trust with you. I mean, the, the word trust itself is really interesting in this context because trust, uh, when you trust somebody, you make yourself vulnerable to them. Right? So there's a weakness there in trust. The ultimate trust we have in life is love. You make yourself the, the, the most vulnerable. Um, and, and if you love a child and, and, and you're going to trust them, you're making yourself vulnerable to that. And if you're the one that's handing them this technology or this scissors or this smartphone, you want to make sure that they're not going to damage or harm themselves with it. So if one of the safeguards is that you want to monitor them, 
well, of course, you should monitor them until you've established a level that you know that they're working with it safely and they don't need to be monitored so much so you can give them, you can give them more trust that they can do this on their own. So I think it's, uh, it's certainly uh, for a young child using a smartphone, I would have them um, uh, monitored to a certain degree and then ease off on the monitoring of trust as it goes to see how, how it works out. Uh, it makes a lot of sense. Paul, thanks so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate no problem, it. My I can't wait to have you back. I mean, we got so much to talk about. We can just do this all day, but, um, Absolutely. You know. I, I, I make this promise to you as well, George, post COVID, I'm going to meet you for a pint in, in uh, New York. And when awesome. all of the, on this and uh, we'll meet up properly and um, I, I, I wish uh, you and, and all your listeners the very best uh, in these challenging times and, and stay safe. Same to you Paul. Stay healthy and safe. Um, when you come over we got a lot to talk about. We got a lot to talk about with, with Task Force 7 and your business and what we're doing so a lot of synergy there. We're going to be able to help each other. Appreciate you. Thanks. Fantastic. So Thank you George. Great it's time to go now. Uh, before we go, I want to remind our listeners, you can visit the Cybersecurity Hub to read a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at www.cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Stay frosty out there. Thank you for tuning in this week to Task Force 7 Radio. To learn more about Task Force 7 Radio, please visit our website at taskforce7radio.com. Be sure to join your host, George Reedus, again next Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. 